0: Funny thing is your business doesn't even occur like an asset on your balance sheet until it's sold. Up until the time you sell that business, it's just a resource on your balance sheet that drives the acquisition of other assets, giving you the opportunity to have financial independence that can fund the work optional lifestyle.
1: Welcome to CEO Brain Food. Every episode, entrepreneur, CEO, founder, and host, Michael Langhout, will bring you key insights, fresh perspectives, and proven tools you can apply to your business. Thought leaders and CEOs will be interviewed as we explore winning strategies for scaling a company, generating profits, and building lasting enterprise value. Make sure you listen all the way to the end of the episode to hear how you can download a free copy of Michael's Functional Team Scorecard. Here's Michael.
2: Hello all and welcome back. Today we're with Paul Adams, founder and CEO of Sound Financial Group. Paul helps his clients design and build a better life. And I want to say in addition to running his own company, Paul is an active speaker and author. In fact, I think I may have met you the first time while you were speaking. But in any event, Paul, welcome to CEO Brain Food.
0: Man, it's so good to be here, Michael. I've been listening to all your episodes, and I have got to say, it's this is a great, great show. Well,
2: thanks so much, Paul. And I and I will uh, full disclosure, you influenced me to start podcasting. So uh, right on. So it's a it's a mutual a- admiration here. Um, I know your first book uh, released a few years ago, uh, titled "Sound Financial Advice," which has been very successful and great read for those that are listening. Um, Paul, what's the uh, what's the ad website address?
0: Yep. You can find us at yourbusinessyourwealth.com. If you're listening in the car, that's the easiest one to remember. But if you want to just type in a short URL, SFG, like Sound Financial Group, and then WA, like Washington.com, sfgwa.com.
2: And you just mentioned your business, uh, Your Wealth. Can you talk about that a little bit? I know that uh, that's the title of the new book. I think you're putting out this going to be released soon, I guess, what, early next year?
0: Yeah, I think we're going to get a uh, pre-release copy out to our clients before year end, and then we'll be up on Amazon and uh, everywhere early next year. Yeah, Your Business, Your Wealth is the name of our podcast, and it's also the name of our upcoming book. And it's that idea that for business owners, what happens far too often is we're told that what will happen is we are going to grow Our business, it's going to be successful and we're going to sell it and then we'll retire. And it's spoken about as if those two things are causative, meaning I sell my business so I can retire when at best they're correlated. Far too often, business owners don't have a strong enough personal balance sheet for them to be able to sell the business and then be able to have a similar amount of income when they're retired, no longer working and trying to live off of what's on their personal balance sheet. So by creating a conversation that it's your business is super important, but so is your wealth on your personal balance sheet. They're not in contrast with one another. They're not competing with one another. In fact, they're working together to make each other more successful. But all too often, business owners spend most of their time focused on just growing their business. And the more successful their business is, they assume it's just going to work out on their personal balance sheet.
2: You know, Paul. Uh, that not to interrupt, but I just want to just jump in here. Um, in my coaching, I I see this all the time, where a CEO and and maybe and I'm working with you know lower mid market companies, companies that have 25 to maybe 500 employees, something like that, in that range. Mm-hmm. And the CEO oftentimes is taking an income that is lower than a market rate to avoid paying taxes and thinking that they're doing well by, you know, avoiding a tax rate where where I I say always look pay yourself a market rate because what you're doing is distorting your P&L with a lower wage, your your profits are overstated obviously. So, you know, if you can if you can give yourself a market wage then and so often they focus just just on their um, you know, their income which you know, really doesn't build up that much uh, if you're on a low salary.
0: and uh, and and then, of course, we want to look at that business balance sheet as well. indeed, indeed. well, and you know, we talk about that idea of something being causative versus correlative. You know the that the sale of the business doesn't cause retirement. It just happens to occur at the same time. So causation would be like heat to water boils water. Correlation would be like, it's a hot day, more ice cream is sold, and yeah. there's more sunburns. Yep. Now, if you came to the conclusion that ice cream caused sunburns, <laughs> then you may be collapsing causation versus correlation. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of the reason why, like whether it's taking an appropriate amount of income from your business or if your CPA is comfortable with the lower level of income, then doing a secondary set of profitability calculations every quarter Yes. that as if you paid yourself enough, what would it be? Right. And then you get a better sense of the real health of the business, perhaps the real value of the business to a buyer, which then gives you a better chance to understand how much capital at work it will take on your personal balance sheet to replace what that business is currently doing. Oftentimes, uh, I love that idea of running a separate
2: P&L with the adjusted uh, um, income in there, uh, not to have a separate set of books or anything like that, but where I'm coming from on this, and this is another aspect of, of, of my coaching that I get into all the time, if your profit is overstated, then you're comfortable with your pricing. Ah, And what I find so often is when you pay yourself a market rate, your profit drops you then have to 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 get that number back up to into the comfort zone where you wanted. You know, some things have to happen. You either raise your prices or reduce your costs. And for some reason, they're so. Uh, most CEOs are very uh, reluctant to test the marketplace to go and. Oh, I couldn't possibly raise my prices. Mm-hmm. I totally disagree. Every time I do this with clients, we go out into the market, we raise the price a little bit, just test it, and pretty soon, over time. Of doing this, you know, year after year, over three or four years, pretty soon, that balance sheet is starting to really grow. Yes, the assets, the owner's equity, and all of that, which are some of the areas I know that you're involved in. So,
0: well, and I think to your point, if if an owner doesn't pay themselves an appropriate amount of what it would take to replace them, and I don't, I wouldn't even go as far as maybe it needs to be a separate set of books. It can just be a separate profit calculation that takes yeah, no account that- if you paid. The owner the appropriate amount
2: exactly not suggesting that we do separate set of books that's not what I'm saying
0: here at all. Though now consider whatever you underpay yourself as an owner, and I've never quite thought about it this way until you brought it up, Michael. But that idea of let's say somebody's currently making seven hundred thousand dollars a year from their business, but in an attempt to avoid paying as much Social Security, et cetera, they're only paying themselves a you know probably much to their CPA's stress. They're only paying themselves hundred thousand dollars a year, and you probably can't replace it exactly what for $100,000. Well, now let's think about it. If that role is supposed to make $150,000 more in the marketplace, meaning a buyer is going to say, hey, I can't replace you for one hundred. dollars I need to replace you for 250 dollars So that's exactly. going to be a, a type of, of push down on the purchase price. Here's the easy math. If you're lucky enough and run a business successful enough that you're able to sell it for five or six times EBITDA, Well, we're overstating on our everyday, and I don't mean like you're not overstating it unethically when you sell, but just as you go through every year and you're putting the value of the business on your balance sheet, you literally are overstating it. If you're doing a 6X valuation, you're overstating it by six times the underpayment of $150,000. That's a $900,000 overstatement of the value of the business aside from the generally optimistic nature of every entrepreneur and business owner, what they think that their business is worth. And so I think that that's great feedback, Michael, that you watch that for clients and help them become more aware because it's there's two things that I watch compete with for business owners that lead them astray. One is they overvalue the business, in just in their own mind, and then they undervalue how much capital it takes to produce the same amount of income. And so if you're making, I'm going to go back to our, our example. If somebody's making $700,000 a year from their business right now, if they just want the income to stay equal, it doesn't matter what you invest in. It could be a real estate portfolio. It could be stocks or a blend of stocks and bonds. No matter what you're investing in, the academic research tells us over and over again, the most you can withdraw for the sake of consumption every year. It including if you have real estate that has an 8% cap rate, you can still only take out four percent because every one of those investments has a time it goes down in value, or you lose tenants, or you have to replace a very expensive roof on a property. Taking out four percent a year gives us the best likelihood of making sure the portfolio lasts. Well, if that's what it's gonna be after we sell the business on our personal balance sheet, then it's gonna require like um, doing the math in my head, seventeen and a half million dollars to just at four percent a year right. turn out the same seven hundred thousand dollars yep. you were earning, and unless somebody's going to buy your business for thirty two x, allowing you to get a big enough check that you can pay taxes and still have that seventeen and a half million, then it's not likely that the business by itself is going to be enough. To have you reach what we refer to as not retirement, but definite financial independence, for the sake of funding your work optional lifestyle.
2: So important, and what a great observation to to take out four percent or less, but to keep the to keep your portfolio growing. And you know, you talk about a seventeen x or whatever, a thirty two x on a, on an exit. Never on a financial acquirer would that happen rarely on a strategic. It does happen occasionally, depending on how motivated the strategic is.
0: It's like a lottery winning if it does.
2: It's a lottery. Exactly. It is so remote. And so I think we need to to kind of reel them in a little bit and and really our listeners and those who might be thinking about exit, which that's not really what this conversation is about. But but when you do think, I mean, ultimately you do think about exit at some point. And I loved your comment too about, boy, you know, when I exit, I'm going to retire. I'm going to get that check, and then the old uh, visual—you know—go sit on a beach somewhere. I don't know anybody that would mm-hmm. do that these days. But basically, you're, you're basically saying you're not going to work anymore uh, for you know for for capital and, and equity growth. Maybe managing your portfolio or doing some service work—you know, uh, missionary work, whatever—in the church. It, it all depends. But you know, we have to be careful, so careful how we think about that, and that's the value I think of having. Someone like you, you, Paul, or your company, you know, you have other advisors in your company that do this, That because we're not, we're busy in this, we're down in the weeds, we're, we're running
0: the business, we don't think about this stuff. Most of the clients I have are just really not thinking about it that much. Yes, and the danger of not thinking about it for every business owner to just not be aware of it, if any of your listeners want to have a little bit of fun with an experiment would be to talk to the people that you know, who are M&A folks or who are business brokers, and ask them, when you're trying to help a business owner sell, what is the biggest reason why the seller pulls out of the deal and then continues to run the business? And I will tell you that they will say that a huge percentage of the time, like way over half of the time, the reason that the seller pulls out is because they found out that that amount of money. Once it's on their personal balance sheet, it will not provide them anywhere close to the amount of income that the business was creating by them being there. Now, sometimes those sales are still forced because of sickness, health, all that. But the bottom line is, everybody listening to this podcast right now, one day, one day, for sure, you won't own that business. That's right. And that'll be by design or by default, but it is going to happen one day. And how do we make sure that you're anticipating it. And, and here's something that just I see all the time. When you get around the M&A folks, when you get around the business brokers, one of the first things they will say is when they're considering working with somebody to sell their business, the first thing you say is, do you have a financial advisor on your team right now? And if not, we need to get one. What I would offer, and especially if those of you that are in the M&A world or where you are that business broker it's great that you do that, but it's too late. Once that business owner is thinking about selling, they may be too close to the finish of that event for the financial decisions they make on their personal balance sheet to close the distance, unless they've already done a lot of other work on their personal balance sheet. But otherwise, what you if you're that M&A person, or if you're a business owner listening, what you should be doing is reaching out to every business owner you know, or if you're that business owner listening, and right now, 20 years away from a potential sale, 20 years away from the time that you want to, you won't sit on a beach forever. Nobody does. But for when you go sit on a beach for two months, so you can say you did, <laughs> <laughs> that you will need to get the planning done well in advance of the sale of your company.
2: Now, oh, that is, that is such a great observation and, and suggestion. I suppose uh, almost you could call it a strategy where, you know, I I just back to this concept of thinking about your business and being down in the weeds. I mean, most of the folks that I'm working with, the CEOs and the leadership teams, they're thinking it's manana. It's something that's going to happen, you know, down the road. It's, yeah, we're working so hard. We're building wealth and, you know, but I'm I'm busy, you know, transacting today. Um, I don't have time to think about this.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And it's not something manana. It it has to happen every day. We got to be thinking about it because if we're not thinking about it correctly, our business is not doing everything that it could be doing for us to build that wealth. And so that's why it's so important to have these conversations. (laughs)
0: <laughs> i have to say something there's a show called how i met your mother and i don't watch it but my uh my business partner cory i guess has watched some episodes and he jokes about something that would happen in that show which is there's a critical situation something needs to be addressed and there's a character called ted who i think is the guy that played doogie hauser oh yeah and i'll always see him as doogie hauser i grew up watching him and he says, "Oh, that's a tomorrow Ted problem, Michael. I don't need to deal with that today." Right. <laughs> the only problem right. that is that if it's a tomorrow you problem, unfortunately, one day you will be that tomorrow you having to deal with the consequences that yesterday you dealt with.
2: <laughs> well, and back to your back to your point about, you know, anybody listening, just, you know, please go out and if you don't have a habit have advisor, get one. Here's the thing, um, you know, when your head is down, processing, transacting, as I say, pushing the sand around, sand and rocks, rocks being the big initiatives, and the, sort of the sand is the transactional activities every day, that building cash flow. Great metaphor. I mean, it's like, think of, uh, we were on the Oregon coast the other day, last couple of weeks ago, and uh, we had, you know, Cannon Beach and Haystack Rock, and, you know, you have all the sand on the beach. Well, the, the idea is you're chipping away at those rocks, and you're making more sand, right? So, you're you're, you're creating more you're creating more uh, complexity, more activity, more cash flow, but your head is down doing that every day. And my gosh, I mean, the, the, the role of the CEO today is, is with the uh, speed of the internet and all of the technology and everything. It's like people just do not have the time and their heads are down. And way off in the distance, there might be some storm clouds forming. The, the analogy there being the visual on that is, you know, of course, the financial storm clouds, and we're not even going to get into our federal problem or the international problem of debt and, uh, you know, and, and and all of it. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I mean, I, I have some strong thoughts about that as well, but we need to be prepared in any event. Um, I, I get concerned about downturns. I don't know what you're thinking about that, but I, I think about every 10 years, historically, we have a some kind of a uh, you know a downturn in the economy I think we're on overtime it's great we got a robust economy no doubt about it but what goes up comes down so we've got to be thinking about building our wealth in a way um, Paul I know um, I know that you've been uh, you know interviewed on uh, Forbes and um, Inc magazine um, uh, entrepreneur magazine some premier uh, business publications what was it about those? Interviews and that those publications that caught their eye, you know what was it that that really uh, compelled them to want to talk with you?
0: One of the first interviews I did was with the Entrepreneurs Organization magazine Octane. So if you're not familiar with the Entrepreneurs Organization, it's a uh, uh, you got to have a business worth over a million or not worth over a million over a million of revenue, and uh, it ends up costing depending on what chapter you're a part of, you know between like seven and probably twelve thousand dollars a year after you pay for certain events, all that stuff. Great, great organization. The drawback of being a business owner is you end up, especially in an organization like EO, and you guys might be familiar with its old name, which was YEO, Young Entrepreneurs Organization. Yeah, I think uh, but everybody like, got older. Everybody got older, yeah. <laughs> Young people don't think far enough ahead of time, as evidenced by building an international business association that literally was set to time out by its own leadership. So- uh, yeah. So now it's changed to EO, but they, they interviewed me. And one of the things I brought up is that you will never have the ability to retire on the business balance sheet. It's So simple. It occurred to me one day after already being in this industry for well over a decade, and all of a sudden it hit me. It's not a competition between what assets you can buy outside your business and how good the return is inside your business. Everybody will agree the best rate of return you have is in your business. It just right up until it's not. And when it's not is when you need to be in a position to have financial independence. Now, most people call it retirement. We don't like that word for a lot of reasons, but financial independence needs to be there. And that can never live on your business balance sheet. Now, every now and then you may have a listener saying to themselves, you know, Paul, uh, I've got my business down where I only go in two days a week, or my plan is to get to where I only have to come in once a week, or I serve as a chairman of the board, and that's my only supervisory duty. And I only come in once a month, and the rest of the time is mine. I'm already financially independent. Here's what I would say as a thought experiment We all know somebody who's been in a position where they didn't have to go into their office much, and then something happened. They had a loss of a key employee. Maybe they died, or maybe they just got mad and left for some reason. They had a business partner do some kind of malfeasance and they had to go in and fix it. There was a major regulatory change. A competitor came into the market. We didn't anticipate whatever it was. But now all of a sudden, that person who had built a certain lifestyle, maybe they hadn't had to come in full time for a couple of years. Now that person is suddenly back working 50, 60 hours a week, trying to right the ship on this huge asset sitting on their balance sheet. Funny thing is your business doesn't even occur like an asset on your balance sheet until it's sold. Up until the time you sell that business, it's just a resource on your balance sheet that drives the acquisition of other assets, giving you the opportunity to have financial independence that can fund the work optional lifestyle. So that was the narrative is that you can't retire on the business balance sheet is what got us picked up by Octane and then had a chance to get interviewed by some of the other publications not long after that, primarily because of this idea that you cannot have financial independence. You cannot retire on the business balance sheet. You have to transmit money from the business's balance sheet to your personal balance sheet by more than the sale. Now, if I can, I'll do a touch of financial nerding, I call it. So uh, maybe 30 seconds here are some heavy numbers, but I think they'll make sense to everybody listening. If you have a business, I'm going to go back to a person making $700,000 a year and you can sell that business. Again, most businesses, if they have say over a few million dollars of revenue, a good multiple they might sell for is like 4 To six times EBITDA with some SaaS companies getting some higher multiples, but they also they might get higher multiples, but there's also a much higher burnout rate before sale Mm -hmm. (laughs) with SaaS companies. So on average, I don't know they're getting a better multiple if we count the ones that crash and burn. So we have that six. I'm gonna go with six X EBITDA. Now, also if you're listening, if you have a much smaller company, you might only be able to get like two and a half times seller's discretionary earnings. But six X. 700,000 is 4.2 million. Okay. So if we could sell that business for 4.2 million as a household, that owner has been making 700 a year approximately because it's EBITDA, not actual earnings, but you get my drift. Now he has 4.2 million. He's got to pay taxes on that. Let's just call it 20%. Now we're down to about 3.2 million. 3.2 million now invested wherever you invest it, and distributing 4% a year gives that owner uh, about $140,000 a year. That is wildly insufficient if the family was counting on $700,000 before. Huge gap. Huge gap. And I'll tell you, when I explain that math of the 4% to large rooms of entrepreneurs, I'll just watch and about half the face faces in the audience That's will go God. ashen. passion, because it's the first time they've ever been exposed to it. Why? Because we've all lived with this idea. I sell my business and retire. Sell my business and retire.
2: That's as deep as the thinking goes, which is tragic because you've got to do, I mean, you just took, what, 90 seconds to Mm -hmm. explain a very, very basic concept that people are not thinking about. Mm -hmm. It's just amazing. That's an amazing uh, uh, formula. And so thank you for sharing that. Paul, one of the things uh, that I wanted to kind of get into a little bit is, you know, I know the process of designing and building a better life is is very comprehensive. The process that you have at Sound Financial, and I know that. I mean, full disclosure, I am a client, so you you folks on listening and you need to know that. But, but having participated in that initial interview, a couple of sides of this question. First is why why would a prospective client want to talk to you? you know and how do you determine who's an ideal client and then i'd like to get some depth from you on your initial discussion which is i think you call it the philosophy discussion yes so why would the client want to talk to you how do you determine who is an ideal client and a little bit on that philosophy discussion what what's that all about what are you trying to get to there
0: i'll share with you one if you're listening to this i'm going to share with folks Who we find gets the greatest amount of value from the work that we do. But I would also say, if you're taking the time to listen to a podcast like CEO Brain Food, if what you want to do is hear our philosophy and learn from it, you're more than welcome to reach out to us. We share that philosophy conversation you mentioned, Michael, with like a missionary's zeal for the work that we do. Because we think it really gives people a different look at the financial services industry overall and what they try to bring to us or pitch us as clients so that no matter what, our biggest conviction around the philosophy conversations, we want people to leave that being better consumers of the financial services industry. Okay. So that's a little disclosure. The working with people, what we find is most of our clients make between 300,000 and 2 million of annual income. Now I say that so precisely Because almost every advisor you run into out there tends to think about attracting new clients based upon their assets that they can manage. It's actually a big, you know, I get all kinds of hits, say on LinkedIn, all these people saying, we'd like to help you find more high net worth clients because everybody in my industry relates to a good client has a lot of assets to manage, which if anybody says we work with clients who have a minimum of X amount of assets under management, what that says to me almost immediately, and I don't mean this to diminish anybody, it's just the way we all learned when we first started in the financial services industry. But you saying clients need a minimum of X in assets under management means you are solving for who you will work with as a client based upon your concerns only, not based upon theirs. That's one. Two, we found that We want to make sure that we work with anybody where we can add significant value in excess of the fee that we charge. So that's usually between $300,000 and $2 million of annual income. Now, we call those soft borders. We'll go below $300,000 of household income if people are really coachable and good savers. And sometimes people are surprised that we limit it on the high end. And it's not a, again, it's a soft border. But once somebody's over two million of annual income, of which we have a few, we just have a very serious conversation with them about whether or not they still make their own decisions. See too often when you get up to like three and a half four million dollars of annual income, it's like decision by posse because everybody's got to get involved in the CPA and the attorney and everybody wants to be there. Now, we are quite a bit different in that we work with the client to help them, do better on the field of play that is money. And we help our clients looking at all of their assets, not just the ones the financial services industry sells people. Because of that, when we make a client an offer, we charge a fee like an architect does. We build the design. We help you build the blueprints based upon the future that you want. And then you have the blueprints. You could go implement that yourself. Just like if an architect gave you blueprints, you could go to Home Depot. And you could get a bunch of two by fours and concrete and start building. Or you could go to your friend from high school who's a general contractor and they could build it. Or you could come back to the architect if it's a design build firm and the architect could build it. Well, that's what we do. We charge clients a fee upfront for the work that we do. About 90% of our clients are between 5,000 and 15,000 upfront. We then take that design and a series of meetings we have with a client over that first year and help them implement better financial strategies to get to the future that is important to them. You know, we our mission as a firm is we help people design and build a good life. But it's no mystery that we word it that way because we first have to design before we start building.
2: That makes sense. So, like on the house example, uh, which I'm considering uh, a new a new home here where I live in my area. And um, I I wouldn't think of doing what I'm doing without first talking to an architect. Right. And uh, I mean, to just to go out and start
0: uh, hacking away at it and building just man, that thing would just fail. Yes. And although, how often is it that high income households, their planning typically looks like this. They might feel like they're planning, but what you probably notice it, if it's you that's doing this, is you build up some surplus And then somebody comes to you with an opportunity or a product or something you should do with your money and then you deploy it. Money builds up and it's deployed. Not deployed because I built this capital up to do this specific thing that's part of my next five-year strategy. No, it just got built up and then somebody said, hey, this is a good investment and then you deploy. And it happens like tactically rather than strategically. So when we have that first philosophy conversation with folks, we talk about why retirement is probably not the outcome you want, how it is that financial institutions have certain rules that they run themselves by that influence the way they teach us about money. And then we give the clients an opportunity to apply to become a client or the prospective client, the opportunity to apply to become a client of ours. Now that may sound kind of funny.
2: (laughs) That's opposite of my experience, Paul, that's quite opposite of the industry.
0: Yes. And and it's because- Yeah, key differentiation. Right. Well, we want it to be safe for, you know, if Michael Langhout wants to refer a very close friend of his, we want you to feel comfortable knowing that we're not going to ask somebody to open their financial kimono in that first meeting. In fact, if they want to share things with us in that first meeting, they're more than welcome to. And we keep that in confidence. But we're not sitting there- attempting to extract as much data as possible in that first meeting. Instead, we say, here's how we feel about the world. We do more of an inquiry with them about their values and what's important to them and what do they worry about in the future, but not about their money. Because that's ones and zeros. They can put that on a form and, and submit that. And then we have another meeting with them to find out kind of the message behind the numbers, what's been going on in their life, what's in, why, why are certain things they've done been important to them. And then we make them an offer. Now we try to not make somebody an offer unless we see that we're going to be able to do so ethically, meaning we will help them produce outcomes well in excess of that fee. And then we kind of did something unique with the securities regulators here in Washington. We are now, as of about a month ago, we are the first firm in the state of Washington who's been given the ability that even though we charge this upfront fee and the reason we charge it is so that our clients don't have to worry about us being dependent on product as a primary revenue model. We're perfectly fine offering advice all year long and never having a client acquire a product from us. That is not the case for most of what I call the big box financial retailers. But there is a risk for a client. If they're going to pay us a good size fee to coach them for a year, we certainly ask for the fee up front. What can we do to protect the consumer? So it took some research. It took some attorneys pulling some case law for me. And I made a proposition to the Washington state securities regulators. And even though we work with clients across the country, this is where we're domiciled. And they said, we're the first firm to actually be able to refund our client's upfront fee for any reason except investment performance. But that's because there's a federal statute that says it can't be for that. But in month four, if somebody said, Paul, I paid you $8,000, but I did find this really cool refrigerator that actually gives an inventory of what's in there and the door is translucent and I can push a button and see through the door. It's $8,000. I need to get a full refund on my fee so I can get the see-through door refrigerator. <laughs> we can refund the money for that. So it's it, literally for, for any reason, because what we want to be able to do is have people that are wildly satisfied with us. And what we don't want to do Sure. is charge a fee to anybody that we didn't provide significant value in return. Yeah. And that's so great. So great. Just one quick
2: uh, closing comment, uh, Paul, just to want to explore something with you on the podcasting and then we can wrap. I know that you're um, an active podcaster. In fact, as I said earlier, you you got me involved um, and I, I love this. I love doing it. And I, <laughs> I love your voice. <laughs> I may, <laughs> I may even have uh, you do some uh, recording for me on my uh, intakes and and, <laughs> and outtake. But uh, you know, your show is titled "Your Business, Your Wealth." Uh, can you can you talk about that a little bit? What's the purpose of it? What are the subjects? I'm sure you're getting into some of the a lot of the things we talked about today. But but this is fairly high level.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, "Your Business, Your Wealth" is a podcast. Uh, we decided. Uh, Uh, earlier this year, that what we do is really make it for entrepreneurs and business owners. Now, for kind of a funny reason, we also work with high-income executives. We also work with specialty physicians, et cetera, high-income employees. And what we noticed was everybody is okay with somebody that's expert at being able to give advice to business owners. But business owners don't necessarily want to work with somebody that's a specialist in physicians. But physicians and executives are both perfectly happy working with somebody who's a specialist in business owners and entrepreneurs. So we just decided to have the whole podcast messaging revolve around the things that are most important to business owners. You know, you go back, we interviewed Scott Adams of Dilbert fame. Oh, yeah. About what it's like to sort of be a business owner, but fall into it. Like he was a good cartoonist, but ended up building one of the most highly monetized cartoons. By the way, no relation with Scott Adams and Paul Adams, (laughs) but- the most highly monetized cartoon, I think, in history. And as a result, like, what was that like? What's it like being a business owner? And what are the things that you struggle with still? What still bother you? And to just get some of that insight. So we do some interviews, we do some where it's just topical things, but we do it because we feel like most of what you get, if you're out there watching YouTube, if you're out there reading articles, you're too often not getting an expert sharing expertise. You're getting a non-expert sharing their experience. And that might produce insight, but it shouldn't produce the advice we would follow. And I'll give one easy example on that. If you took, pick whoever it is you listen to, read, or watch consistently in the financial space. And if you don't consistently do that, You can go to yourbusinessyourwealth.com and subscribe. We'll send you an email every time we post a new episode. But you think of the people that you know of, some of these pundits that are out there. And if you went to a court of law and said, hey, I followed that person's advice and it didn't work out for me. They'd be like, well, where did they give you the advice? Well, I listened to their radio show for six months straight. "Uh Uh-huh. And then you execute it and they say, yeah, then I did the advice and it didn't work out and I lost a bunch of money. What's the judge going to say? He's going to look right at you or she and say, hey, that's entertainment. That's not advice. That's how, but somebody's a client of mine and says, my advice didn't work. Mm -hmm. They can actually sue me. Mm -hmm. And that's how you know the difference between an expert (laughs) and somebody sharing their experience. And And to kind of help with that and something that we'd love to do for your listeners is that the first 30 people who reach out to you, Michael, and say that they'd like a copy of our book, or they can message me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find all over the social mm. interwebs. <laughs> that if they let you know, we'll send them a copy of my most recent book, Sound Financial Advice. Oh, that's great! And all they got to do is get a hold of you or message us directly with their mailing address, and we'll get that out to them.
2: Great, and thank you, Paul, for that. And uh, just wrapping here, I just want to to review and say, you know, first of all, thank you so much for um, sharing some time today with our, our audience. At CEO Brain Food, one reason that I just really wanted to have you on the episode is that I know that you're very different. What you're doing is very, very highly differentiated in the in the crowded field in the financial services industry. I love that you take a uh, an initial uh, fee, you know, just based on on where that particular individual is at, and it could be anywhere from five thousand to fifteen thousand or whatever. I think you mentioned that and. I know that you do have assets under management, but that's not the play. I mean, you're really trying to help people. Even in the philosophy discussion, you're, even if they don't become a client, you're leaving them in better uh, shape and better care than, than when you first found them. And, um, and I know that to be true because we've talked about that a number of times.
0: What well, really comes from your encouragement. In fact, all my negotiation with the state of Washington comes out of your coaching to us hmm. about being able to make sure, can you have a compelling offer? Uh, the regulation wise, they don't love us running around saying money back guarantee because of the financial services compliance standards. I can get
2: away with that. But, <laughs> <you can. laughs>
0: but as an example, though, that and what we call our financial triage, which is sometimes we won't make an offer to somebody, but what we do even in that case is take 30 minutes with them. To give them as many things that they can change but they just got to take fast notes and we'll have one of our team communicate to them a whole bunch of free advice on their finances because that's awesome per your coaching we want to make sure that people are always in a spot that after having an experience of interacting with us so the philosophy conversation is high value add and then if they choose to apply and we don't make them an offer then that financial triage is high value add so that Michael Langhout or any of our clients never feel bad about introducing somebody and then if they do engage we've already done our work ahead of time in assessing that we will supply value well in excess of the fee that we charge and if we can't do that then the client can get a refund within the first 6 months so everything we've done is to make it as safe as possible for people to be in conversation with us because we know that it does not feel safe to most people to have a conversation with a financial person. That really came out of our work with you years ago.
2: Well, it really doesn't feel safe. And and again, it's such a crowded field. And so many, almost all that I know that uh, in the financial services and financial advising industry, that professional services industry, most, if not all, are um, you know, taking some kind of a, a fee or a commission off of their assets under management. And so this is really great, Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. And again, you can find Paul at... Uh, at uh, Sound Financial Group, uh, sfgwa.com. You can also find him at yourbusinessyourwealth.com, which is also the title of a uh, of his uh, podcast. And Your Business, Your Wealth is available at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, um, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening, you can find it. So please uh, join Paul and Corey shepherd, his partner, as they uh, educate us about our wealth. So thank you so much, Paul.
0: Yeah, thank you, Michael.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of CEO Brain Food. If you're enjoying the content of these episodes and are ready to get your leadership team aligned so you can scale effectively, we invite you to download Michael's newest resource, the Functional Team Scorecard. This scorecard will help you establish role clarity and accountability on the senior leadership team engage your leadership team in the financials of the business and align and synchronize your team around a critical number. Download your free copy today at ceobrainfood.com forward slash scorecard or click on the link in the show notes. Tune in next Monday for another compelling episode of CEO Brain Food.